Hi, I'm Edward Cohen. Welcome to Tangent. Hey there, Jeffrey Berman. Welcome to Tangent. Benvenuti, Tangent. <laughs> we actually hired an AI to translate our podcast to every language, and Zach is our AI, starting with Italian. Inexplicably, not in Japanese. And by the way, you know, Edward, you know it's always going to be like this. We we got an early uh, question from the audience here. Can uh, Jeff please stick to maximum of three tangents per episode? Impossible. Three. We'll give you three. The audience is asking for it, Jeff. So I've already broken it. You already have one. So you got two left here. Today we have Michael Broder and James Moore, CEO and COO at Rockerbox, a data mining platform for maximizing the performance of multifamily assets. Hi, Michael. Hi, James. Where does this podcast find you? Washington, D.C. There you go, Washington, D.C. How strategic, and we'll find out more why soon enough in our conversation. State of the market, state of the multifamily. So let's set the stage, guys. Um, the market is expecting a surge in rental building openings for the next two years, the highest since the 1980s. Finally, we're getting some housing. Um, however, the influx of new supply has caused apartment vacancies to rise and rent growth to flatten or even decline in several areas. What's happening in the multifamily market? What are you seeing from your end? Well, I can start. Uh, you know, the, the number one thing is uh, I think people are still looking for some stability because while there are pockets in the U.S. where we're seeing that supply coming in, like you mentioned, the next two years, the uncertain interest rate uh, environment has certainly uh, slowed new building planning, you know, the penciling out of deals, the access to capital. Um, so we've seen that there's maybe a longer tail of some, you know, rough waters on the horizon. Um, but certainly in the short term, the, uh, you know, the supply side will have an impact. Um, but at the end of the day, there's enough demand out there to ultimately pick this up. But I also think one of the reasons why you may be seeing a flattening of rent growth or even a decline is not just a reflection of the economic uh, conditions or the macro concerns people may have around the economic conditions and, and, and how that may be impacting their rental budgets. But I also think what you're seeing is a reflection of the commoditization in the industry mm -hmm. and the oversupply that um, is certainly running rampant among uh, several uh, or within several gateway markets and certainly where a lot of these product, this product is being delivered. It's a reflection of what's previously been built. And obviously, we all recognize that our lives and behaviors have dramatically changed since the pandemic in terms of what we're looking for, what we may value. And so it is a perfect storm, right? So you have an evolved set of renters with different demands and preferences uh, and different lifestyle behaviors because of what we've all collectively experienced, married to an economic environment that is a very challenging one. And so when you have a more selective renter base uh, with different um, priorities, I think they're going to be much more sensitive to prices in terms of rental budgets uh, around the types of environments that they're looking for versus things that they may have to settle for. And so I think see some of that downward price pressure due to the commoditization and oversupply. 
Well, that's interesting that you say settle for because when I hear what when I hear those words, this actually seems like for the first time in quite some time, it's going to become a little bit of a renter's market because if there's an additional supply, hyper amenitization, which we're going to talk about later, I'm sure, and downward price pressure, all of a sudden the challenge of, let's say anything but the AAA trophy buildings become a little bit more difficult to lease. They've got to step up their game and start appealing to a buyer that hasn't had much choice probably in the last decade. Zach, what do you think? I think anecdotally, it's hard to square the rent contraction with the general inconvenience and pain that my friends is, who are customers, who are renters all over the country, experience looking for an apartment. So I'm always flummoxed when the anecdotal stories and the real data conflict. Um, I don't really know what to make of that. I think we were, we were many of us were just at, at Blueprint. I moderated a panel on tenant engagement, amenitization, how do you measure tenant satisfaction, um, how do you treat a renter like a human being um, in, instead of uh, a, a piece of garbage. You know, in the good old days for our industry, you used to just have a voicemail and people would call the voicemail and, and you wouldn't even say what your management company's name was. You would say you've reached 212-336-5680. Uh, no one is here to take your call. No one will ever be here uh, to take <laughs> the call, in fact. Um, but we have to have this uh, voicemail box. So times have changed. I think even even when there was upward pressure significantly on rents, the end customer, the renter was demanding a higher level of service, amenitization, uh, technological sophistication associated with the whole end-to-end process. Um, the idea of calling these people residents or customers instead of tenants, that started before we saw this massive rent growth during uh, the pandemic. One of the things I want to say about the contraction, while <laughs> certainly near-term painful for all of us on this call as members of the real estate industry, keep in mind, rent is a gigantic contributor to CPI. And if you have constant rent growth, you're going to have massive inflation which causes interest rate hikes, which is not good in the medium or long term for the real estate industry. So the real estate industry is kind of a victim of its own success as it relates to rent growth, inflation, and interest rate hikes within a cycle. So granted, caveat, I'm not a multifamily landlord, so I'm not feeling this pain directly, but I'm not necessarily as concerned about a near-term contraction, especially as it relates to the overall macroeconomic picture and the idea of inflation finally getting tamed, which hopefully will buoy the existing home sales market, which is in the toilet. I think that market's bottomed out. I think it's worse than it's been in 40 years. We have unnecessary demand pressure because everyone's trapped in these 2.5% mortgages 
on new home construction and existing homes is just in the toilet. And so I think we need to return to an equilibrium where the multifamily asset class can survive, the mortgage industry can survive, which it's not right now, and the single family existing home transactional players, your brokers, your your notaries, your title agents can can thrive again. But that's also because I play the whole market. I'm not specifically uh, in multifamily. That's one of uh, many asset types that we, you know, as well as Camber Creek would, would, would cover in a portfolio of software investments. One thing I would jump in on is there's a couple of different factors. So Wall Street Journal today, top story is return to work is is not resetting to 2019 levels, right? Um, it's settling at 50 to 60%. We did surveys throughout the pandemic with office workers, with decision makers. We knew that was coming and, you know, multifamily is still making the adjustment uh, to account for the fact that that many of the renters are using space that is partially work from home, that the new normal is going to be two to three days in the office. Um, but there's also another factor because of everything that was just mentioned. One, you have people that are priced out of the home market, whether it's a brand new build or, or sale of an existing home. So we're seeing more of a permanent class that the American dream no longer really means buying a home. So you're going to have a permanent class of renters, and those are choosy choosers. Um, they have you know higher demands, um, preferences, etc. Um, and on top of that, you know again you have the price factor. They will shop and, you know, they need a different utilization of space, a different level of amenitization and a lot of the technology and the customer service. And that's ultimately where we sort of sit is bringing that voice of the customer to the multifamily market. The voice of the renter at your fingerprints. Love that segue, James. We're just about to jump into what Rockerbox does. But uh, just to wrap up the state of the multifamily market, I mean, uh, I think there we'll, we'll see a difference between new multifamily hitting the market and existing transactions of multifamily buildings because, so according to Census Bureau, apartment building starts fell by 41% in August uh, compared to same month in the previous year. Uh, that's um, the lowest we've seen since, you know, subprime uh, housing crisis. Um, and I think, however, at the end of the day, we're going to see, a, you know, we are seeing a flight to safety around the world. And safety usually means the U.S. And, you know, for those who have the access, uh, that usually means real estate. Office used to have that privileged asset class for foreign investors that typically target. But I think, you know, multifamily now has that has that solidity uh, that offers, you know, trophy assets, stable cash flow. I mean, we're seeing now the likes of uh, Zara's, Amancio Ortega, Eyal uh, Offer, you know, buying up multifamily in Chicago, in New York. So I think um, builders are wary because they're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of units, more units than we've seen since the 80s hit the market this year and next in multifamily. However, that doesn't mean that there won't be appetite there, both from the renter side, but also the investor side. So Rocker Box, Michael and James, uh, you both served as campaign strategists and media consultants for several uh, political campaigns, uh, including at the governor, Senate, Congress level. 
you know, how has your tremendous experience in campaigning propelled you to find insights in multifamily, understand what renters want from their apartments? Well, it really begins with, at the end of the day, when you're running a political campaign, understanding what moves people and to what extent and why in terms of what they favor, who they may vote for, how exposing them to certain variables of information uh, about a particular candidate may move the needle right in one direction or another, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. Um, when you start to think about applying that type of insight into the real estate world, I mean, one of the things that has always fascinated me about about real estate, particularly over the past you know four or five decades, is it's one of the, it certainly one of the largest asset classes in the world, but it also is one of the most mature markets that doesn't necessarily understand their end user to the extent that comparable mature market sophisticated markets do. And it's a bit like flying upside down, right? So when there is a oddity in a market that may affect the performance of real estate assets, Oftentimes, if you knew more about your end user, you could actually see that trend emerge way before it ever actually reached a point that would impact performance of an asset. So when we got involved in, in real estate, first as a consulting group called Brightline Strategies, where we did bespoke research and advisory services in real estate for 15 plus years, among several other industries, when we launched the, the the platform and cannibalized our, our consulting practice, it was really to bring a, a level of insight about the end user, what influences their demand, just like we would understand that in the political world, right? If I expose you to certain variables, and now I understand that your demand intensity or your lease likelihoods or your willingness to rent climb to be in a particular type of project um, now I understand the causal factors of that impact and that decision-making. That's part of the problem with relying very much on traditional contextual or supply-side data alone, because you never really get that voice of that customer, right? And if you're looking at a comp set and you're trying to evaluate what you may want to build across the street, right, on the lot you may own, by definition, by evaluating what's in the market and what has performed well, and then simply saying, and I'm oversimplifying this for purposes of this discussion, but simply saying, we're going to build a building that is reflective of product in this market that has performed well over the past three to five years. And then we're going to sprinkle some additional amenities or features in there so that we're, quote, differentiated effectively, all you've done is commoditize the market, right? You've copied what's across the street in the hopes that because those buildings historically have performed well, we will perform well in doing the same type of build. The reality is you could do far much better if you understood who your end users were at the beginning of the process, who, uh, what their preferences were, how did those factors influence their decision-making, both in terms of their consideration and choice of the building and the rent premiums they're willing to pay to be in that building. This gets back to my point about, you know, being satisfied or excited about choosing that new apartment versus settling to be in that new apartment. And the more you know about that end user and what actually moves them, just like we did in the political world, 
you can leverage those insights to align to that end user's demands, preferences, priorities, and then it becomes far less relevant what the building across the street has. Because now in commoditized markets, the way you actually extract a premium is not necessarily differentiating against your competition and saying we're better than X because, but it's actually aligning to that customer to say, we understand you better than anybody else and have curated these environments based on what we know is important to you. And therefore you have a much closer alignment to those people and what drives the you making. That's great. Lots to unpack there. Let's talk about, so supply side versus demand side insights. Um, historically, we've had more access to supply side insights and uh, that's what you're proposing. That's how you're helping multifamily developers uh, understand and plan better. So what, what are tr renters truly looking for? I mean, renters have a budget. They know how much they want to pay. They can't pay more than that. Uh, they know where they need to live because that's where they work or that's where they study or whatever. So what you know? What what else? What what should developers uh, be taking into account from renters' preference that that they aren't already or that they are overlooking? Well, one thing just to <laughs> get it out of the way because what we do ultimately is we survey people. We survey current renters as well as prospective. The way we find them is through their digital dust. If they're out there searching on apartments.com or Google, other places. They leave a trail that we're able to find, we're able to invite them into our study, and then it's comprehensive. It's literally from some of the factors you just mentioned, could be location, it could be the size of the unit, uh, on down. But what we're looking for is the movement. And, and the common thing we hear is, well, we look at these presidential polls, and if you ask uh, you know, President Clinton and President Romney, President Hillary Clinton, uh, the polls are always wrong. So how are you guys able to, you know, find the, the secrets? Well, the reality is Mike touched on it before is what we're looking for is movement. We don't care about the horse race on a given day. What we're really looking for is what were the factors that from when a person states their initial budget to adding in some of the features in their unit or the amenities in the building, what actually causes them to move up or down in price? That's the premium factor that we were discussing. And, and how do they actually make the choice? Because you can, in, a very, in various markets, you could have multiple apartment building choices, um, but how do they actually settle on one? And that's the type of movement that we can see within our surveys. Um, and we can isolate those factors. But a lot of it starts with just the very simple things of, you know, wood floors versus composite floors, types of cabinetry, the size of kitchens, the size of, of bedrooms. These are some of these like kind of last mile things that people ultimately will choose one product over another. And, and that's the type of data that, that our system actually, our platform uh, imparts to so our we, customers. Can we, can we take a step back for a second? Because full disclosure, I've known uh, Broder for a very long time. Uh, I've known James for, I think, two years, maybe. And I want to talk about how your system actually does what it does. Because what you're describing for a developer or for a redeveloper is 
could be and would be quite valuable. But you said you're you are you're finding the resident at their movement point. What does that actually mean? How are you actually getting that survey into their digital hands? These are digits, actually, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are digits. So I think what you're asking, Jeff, is is ultimately how do we recruit? And then what do the models look like? No, no, not not what the models look like, because that I get. I understand that we have a, a company called Unicast that is a processor of location data and analytics. I get that. It's specifically how you're reaching, because in the past, when I was younger, for survey data, it was literally someone with a clipboard that said, hey, 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 do you have five minutes to answer some questions? We're a little more sophisticated than that today. They're um, at Washington Square Park. Haven't you seen them? Yes. With a table. Yeah, that's right. Uh, have a donut, take the survey. Um, so there's a there's a multi multitude of of tactics we utilize to ultimately recruit into our surveys. So yes, it it some of it comes from the digital dust that Jamie referred to in terms of renter footprints when they're actively engaged in an apartment search. But we also because we build our data models at the zip code level across an entire state, uh, we have to be very uh, myopic in terms of how we build those models at the zip code level. So we use phone banks, we use computer assisted telephone interviewing, we use um, panel partners to help us build sample among certain types of of respondent population. But does that, sorry for the interruption, but does that mean that the, that the way, I, I wanna dig into the digital dust side because that's yep. the side that's a little bit of an enigma for me. The, 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 the it sounds like the, the analog side of this is okay, you may get a text or a call on your phone that says, hello, this is Rockerbox. We would love to hear what you have to say, and you're going to get a pepperoni pizza. And if you're kosher, a regular pizza, vegan, whatever, and that's it. The Is, is that accurate on the analog side of it? Yeah. I mean, we have to use both analog and digital. Um, so let's talk about the digital dust. How, how, do you, how are you picking up the scent as it were to to grab the 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 survey respondents potential survey respondents yeah so you know just like if you muse out loud that you're looking for a new belt um into your phone or siri hears you etc um the next thing you know for the next couple of days you're going to see a bunch of ads for belts we're pretty much the same thing. So instead of belts, we're offering you an opportunity to shape future development in your area by, let, by letting your voice be heard. And that's really what it is. Um, and are you delivering that through Instagram, through ticking talk, snapping chat? I like to add my NGs. Actually, all of, yeah, all of those um, that as Michael referenced, we are agnostic as far as how far and how wide we will go, but you can pay for virtually access to anything. Um, everyone is sort of dealing with that phenomena, but you know, what makes our performance better is because the residents who have never really been asked what their preferences are now actually do have an incentive because no, no, I, I, I understand. I, I want, our listeners to actually understand this because because this is the important piece. So you have 
people that are absolutely addicted to Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat. Gosh, that's, that sounds so... Jeff is now addicted to Twitter as well, by the oh, way. Oh, right. Well, I'm brand new, but I'm already failing. Zach, by the way, I have I have, I have have X and I'm I'm not doing well. That's He's X'd out. I got I got off X. I got I got um I got X made from X. I got eighty sixed off X. We should talk about that. You must have uh, upset our mutual friend, but it's all we, good. we should talk about it. Yeah, I think we you should know. Talk. I think usually when I when I approach someone to do a survey similar to how I've been approached uh, over the past couple of days, I show up with the lulav and I ask them <laughs> if they want to do the survey. For, for the, our for the, listeners who don't happen to be of the Jewish faith, a lulav is a palm branch that you shake uh, in a synagogue or in a hut that's made out of, I don't, this is crazy how I'm describing this. Let's get back to the question. That's your second tangent four. of the day. So, so now you have, you have this, right now, it's mostly consumer products that are advertising in the way uh, that, that you're describing. So now what you're saying is, okay, I'm on my phone and I know that most people are now looking for their apartments, whether it's apartment list or Zumper or whatever, using this device. I'm getting a call right now. Great. Now, because they're searching this in XYZ area, and I want to talk about the locations that you, the markets that you guys are in, you're now essentially engaging in, you're paying for that digital dust as it were. So you're, you, have a, you have a large advertising cost, I would imagine, to pull those users into whether it's Snapchat, TikTok, or Instagram, or whatever. And then you say, hey, Zach, we noticed you were doom scrolling apartment list for that six bedroom that you want that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> you know you want that, Zach. The... Uh, how would you like to participate in the survey? So that's how you're doing it. That's how you're creating the, the the data. And then you're using your experience that you guys honed at Brightline because you know the mechanics of how to create a survey that actually gets actionable insights. That's the that's the the magic in the rocker box. Am I describing that accurately? Right. You could come sell for us. Yes. Um the, yes, in a nutshell, I mean, there's a lot of layers in terms of how you ensure the data is you know, the integrity of the data, the randomization of the recruitment. There's a lot of best practices that go into that to uh, achieve the level of statistical confidence and accuracy that our data does. But at a very high level, what we've just described is how we recruit the inputs. And there's a lot that goes around that as well. But yes, absolutely. So that's really interesting. So you, so, and I'm, this is a slight tangent, but who's responsible for ensuring statistical significance of the user experience? In other words, Zach and I, I mean, Zach shaved his beard, so we don't look as brotherly as we normally do, but ordinarily we look like we're from the same shower, the gene pool and the, uh, and we're like the same height. It's weird. We do the same thing. It's, it's actually very strange. How do you, you it, it's less interesting if you have our opinions side by side. So who's responsible for ensuring that you are getting a multiplicity of opinion so that you actually have statistical significance and a breadth of comp the composition of the, of the survey respondents? 
So yeah, we, Michael mentioned it before, you know, we're tied to census right down to the neighborhood level. So what we're looking for is we want to make sure that we have enough sample, meaning number of current and prospective renters that fit a variety of different demographics. So we're looking to fill all the income bands. We need the age bands. We need life stage because we're, we're partly looking for, you know, people who may be thinking of starting a family, already have a family. You're looking at move downs, people who are going to sell their home and, and enter the, uh, you know, no, the I, get, I get all that. But how do you ensure that you're not getting duplicates of the same people? Like once somebody clicks on, yes, I agree to take your survey and you've checked the box for the amount of people that you want in that is it the plat the social media platforms that essentially have an algorithm and say, or is it you guys? Us. So this when whenever we're going to deploy into a geography, and let's just take a state, let's take Virginia for for an example, in our backyard, right? And all the zip codes that that comprise the state of Virginia, within each zip code, there are uh defined population strata by a lot of the demographic characteristics that Jamie referenced. And then there's their respective densities associated with those, with that strata. We, when we build our data models, the zip code total population count and within that particular um, designated area is how we configure our sample sizes, right? So in very densely populated zip codes, like in Northern Virginia, obviously you have to have a much larger sample size because of the densities of people that live in those zip codes. Whereas when you get into the middle of nowhere, right, you may only need 35 respondents in that zip code because there's only a hundred people that live there, right? So part of it isn't just about number and strata of populations, but it's actually ensuring that your samples within those um, zip codes are statistically powered relative to the population set that lives there. And so that there is math that happens before you ever go into the field to understand what the quotas are, because you have the difference, you know, a lot of times in real estate, people go, oh, well, we do primary audience research. We've conducted focus groups to understand what a renter likes. Well, the problem with that is it's not quantifiable, right? A focus group is qualitative research. It's anecdotal evidence. It is expressed opinion of, around a certain finding, a hard finding that you may uncover, right? We want to be able to quantify everything because when you're stress testing an investment thesis or a development hypothesis or any of the things or, or an investment decision, you want to be able to look at it in quantifiable statistical terms, right? In today's world, that window of success is so much narrow, more narrowly defined because of all the factors we talked about before, you better be damn well certain that what you're building is ultimately not meeting where the market was, but where that market is going, right? Otherwise, you're going to be left behind in that commoditization trap. So by understanding where that demand is coming from, among whom, and at what depth, right? So do I have enough demand depth among these very specific homogeneous renter populations that I've now identified as critical the future success of this asset, is there enough of them? Am I aligning 
what I'm building with what's ultimately going to drive their decisions. And so when you do the samples, you have to make sure that it's not just statistically powered overall, but down within every single population strata that you include in whatever scenario you run in the platform so that you can say with statistical confidence, this data has a margin of error of plus or minus 3%. And we know definitively if we build this, we're going to capture this opportunity in the market because nobody else understands or is willing to pursue that opportunity. So let's talk about your customer base. So your customer base right now are multifamily owners and operators. And investors. Yes. So are you, for new build, it makes a ton of sense. And for redevelopment, it makes a ton of sense. But talk to me about a person, like for instance, Canberra Creek has the 300 strategic LPs that own and operate millions of units around around the globe. Mm-hmm. So for those folks that are not in lease up, is your product still relevant? So I would tell you that the first product that we launched uh, was really designed around the first stage of a project's life cycle. So the acquisition through development stage, right? And this platform is really, the first product in the platform is really meant to enable a developer to stress test all the assumptions he or she has around what they're planning to build. Can I achieve that rent rate? Am I leaving money on the table? Do I need to change my unit mix, right? Do I need to be more reflective of the of the trend we're seeing emerge where people are gravitating towards larger units now because of their change in their living behaviors? How can I save money? What How can I don't save I have money? to build? Right. What amenities don't I need to put in? Or can I get away with lower level finishes because they don't move the demand or premium needles or lease intensity needles? Um, so understanding all those factors and, and not being a prisoner of time. I mean, when you think about when a lot of these decisions are made, right, they're made way early in that pre-development stage of an asset's life cycle. Well, that's not necessarily, you make a decision back here, a lot can happen from that moment in time to when you ultimately have brought to market. So the ability to actually iterate and refine your thinking up until the point where you need to sign in blood on that decision, whether it's the unit count or the amenitization or whatever it may be, you're constantly able to ensure that I am building to where demand is moving to, not what it's moving away from or where it once was. And and that is a critical factor on the development piece. And that's why the the system has that iterative capability where you're constantly able to refine and make minor tweaks to your development uh, thesis to see what levers do you have at your disposal that cause that product to be far more desired and perform better in terms of outsized returns or rent premiums that you can capture by understanding who your targets are, what's important to them, and how that influences their decision-making. That's the first product, right? The second product, which we've initiated development on, is our lease-up micro-targeting tool. Think of that as a get-out-the-vote operation for lease-up. And all the micro-targeting capabilities and direct audience engagement tactics that we use in the political world, we have now applied to real estate. And we have done this many, many times in the bespoke world back in our consulting days. 
Now we've built an on-demand platform to guide people to help them really become far more efficient in their outreach and engagement and conversion of prospective renters for their buildings, because now you're playing on a field that you actually understand, right? You understand what's going to move Jeff or Jamie, right? Or me versus let me just spray and pray and hope that my net is wide enough that I catch enough of that demand to then convert it. Well, there's such a better way to build that mousetrap. And that is on the efficiency of the design and build and programmatic elements of a building and what that yields, as well as the way you engage those audiences once you go into the lease up space or asset stage and ultimately who you go after and why and what your yield is. And how about once there's stabilization? What's the utility of the product at that point? So the third platform or the third product in the platform is what we call an optimization tool. So uh, it's it's funny, actually, our very first foray into real estate back in the Brightline days was actually on optimizing existing assets. Like how do we take an older building and actually rehabilitate that or breathe life into that building so it can perform at a much higher rate? Uh, so there's two ways to actually utilize the platform. One is the third product, which is all about understanding what are the triggers of re- renter retention, right? What are the drivers that actually really do influence renewal intentions? And how do those correlate with the willingness to rent climb over time if, if what those retention drivers demand is going to require additional investment on behalf of the owner or manager of that property? And you're able to not only compare what those drivers are from a market standpoint, meaning renters in that market, but you'll also be able to impanel your own residents within your building and actually do side-by-side comparisons to understand, is my building kind of performing, in a, are my renters performing in a similar way to the market, or do I have a unique set of renters in my building that they kind of buck the trend or the exception to the rule. And and it helps you understand what to focus on. But, you know, it's fascinating about somebody earlier on was talking about the experience and the services that are required. Uh, You know, back in our very first real estate study was back in 2008, right after the or during the Great Recession. And it was it was actually on the office side and it was all about understanding what the attrition risk was in a particular portfolio, given what was happening in the market. And what was fascinating, because you hear so many people talk about, well, it's the built environment that matters most, right? It's what we create for people. Well, what's really fascinating is while the built environment certainly matters, and obviously the more luxury you go up that scale, Obviously, you have a more refined audience that cares about those those elements. But across the board, whether it is a workforce housing product or a trophy asset building and the renters that are in it, it's about, they, they frame it this way. Class A living is not just about class A space. It's about class A relationships. And what they're really saying in that is about the service elements that actually create that 360 environment that people respond to. So it's not just about the built environment, but you would never know those factors. Interesting. Actually speak to people. 
right? And understand what moves them. And that ultimately across the board, whether it's how do I optimize the building, what services or amenities or experiential elements or unit updates do I need to deploy to get those products to perform better all the way down to the very beginning and what I'm going to bit and what I'm, I am planning to build does that align with where demand is and causal drivers of performance going forward and then how do I reach and engage those audiences that are most likely to consider and choose my property in a far more efficient and effective manner so I reach a faster uh, time to stabilization I achieve a higher rent premium all the things that people care about from an ownership and asset performance standpoint, everything that we do is to drive to those out. Now, before we jump into the last ones, I'm curious, you know, everyone talks about, yeah, what are the most sought of after amenities, what amenities command the most premium, rent premiums. You know, we, we more or less know that if you're a young professional, you probably will want, you know, more amenities or you'll want more outdoor space or you'll want, you know, washer dryer in unit or at least washer dryer in your building. However, I'm curious about non-amenity stuff that that you're finding signal for for your uh, clients. Um, you mentioned briefly before the type of floors. You know, um, are higher higher ceilings uh, gonna command higher premium? You know, like I'm interested. What I know it depends on the market, depends on the type of renter, that type of product. But you know, please share some of the stuff that you've found that you know you typically wouldn't think of. Uh, like you know, people mostly think about amenities and not other stuff. Well, the one thing is, because we have the benefit of having seen all the work in our bespoke consulting days pre-COVID, so we got to see what moved the needle back then to now, you know, we've been in the field, you know, populating Rockerbox in Maryland, D.C., Virginia, Florida, and Texas. Um, we've gotten to see how those things have moved over time. And, you know, the bigger thing is COVID has put more of a premium on people thinking more about their actual physical live space. What is in unit, um, whether it's window lines, the types of windows, balconies, like you mentioned, ceilings, um, cabinetry, you know, the number of bathrooms, the layout configuration. Yes, people want bathrooms, but what they really want you know, is that powder room so that their guests don't have to, you know, trounce through the rest of their apartment to go through. Um, you know, obviously there is a difference between sort of, we'll just say younger and older audiences on the preferences in the kitchen. You know, younger folks um, are door dashing and Uber eating and, and going out. Um, so they care a little less about the kitchen and all the, the fanciness. They will take lower grade appliances. But on the other side, um, you know, the move downs are used to bigger closets, bigger bedrooms, you know, bigger kitchens that they probably had, you know, fancy appliances. So there's also some competition, you know, just within various targets that might be rich for, you know, uh, a faster pace of lease up and premium, but they're going to be very different. So perhaps it's also not just looking at, do I have the right stacking, the right number of bedroom configurations, but do I have a mix of different types of units that might appeal to different audiences? But it, but it really starts with who am I building for? And that's the level of granularity that we can give you is 
you know, what is your coalition, you know, to beat the political horse again, you know, to get you to 50 plus one, but in the case of stabilization, 70, 80, 90%, um, it might be a mix of different audiences who are looking for, you know, different in-unit features. But the thing that we see constant is there's always a lot of buzz around amenities. Um, Certainly, you know, you guys know probably just as well or better than us, you know, they're very appealing on the tour. People want certain things. They get, you know, the wow factor of the pool on the roof or, you know, the fancy lobby. But those ultimately don't make the decision for people. You know, they're part of the how they choose to actually look at a building, but they what actually moves the rent needle has less to do with the amenities themselves. Yeah. I find as a as a renter and uh, also as partner of multifamily owners and operators that it's really hard, even within the same neighborhood, to compare apples to apples, um, even though they are all you know somewhat commoditized, especially in parts of you know the Midwest and the West Coast. We have the five over ones that they all look the same, and if you've seen one or lived one or invested in one, you know how they look. But anyway, um, collaboration superpower. James or Michael, what historical figure, living or not, would you like to do a partnership with and why? And you can't choose Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or one of those. Well, Henry Ford. Yeah. Do you think he'd work with you, though? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Good old I Henry. Think, I think the reason why I, I, I that occurred to me is you think about a guy who disrupted an entire society, right? By bringing something forward. And it wasn't just the automobile. It was everything he did to get to the automobile, right? And to produce the automobile and the mass scale that he did and all of those innovations and the challenges he faced. Uh, you know, I tend to think whenever you try to introduce something new to an industry, uh, and we've seen this, you know, as the consultants who used to help people do this before we actually did it ourselves. Um, you know, you always face headwinds and the ability to demonstrate the value and what this means going forward is important. And that is true, whether it's Rockerbox or Henry Ford with the automobile. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, there are always people who are going to say, we don't need a car. We have a horse and buggy. We're good. Right. There are always people who say we don't need to understand that level of of our end user because we've been doing it this way for this many years and we good. We're understanding our market. I got to say and be true. I'm sorry. I got to say. Zach Edward, that was probably the best of these we've ever had. One Henry Ford. And I'm I, I'm I'm trying to control myself because all I can think about is the family guy episode with Henry Ford. I won't even you have to Google it, uh, but it's ridiculous. That's one. But two, you juxtaposed the creation of the automobile assembly line and its concomitant effects on our society with your company. That is that is super awesome. Mind blowing. Uh, you win. I, I, I don't know, Zach. I didn't know it was a competition, but I'll take the victory. It's always a competition. I I just watched the film uh, um, Ford versus Ferrari. So good. And one of my favorite scenes is when uh, Enzo Ferrari uh, tells the Ford executives to go back to uh, Dearborn, Michigan, 
and he uses some pretty uh not tangent uh language um but uh i had i had no idea about that and that and that he was using ford to get uh agnelli of fiat to just buy him out because he was in dire financial straits at the time fascinating automobile history yep. um, but yeah i i i agree with jeff that was a very so uh, tight succinct coherent and um borderline delusional answer to you just described every entrepreneur but amazing. amazing that was that was so good future future guests take a note yeah that indeed a, that was a master class yeah collaboration superpower is becoming a phenomenon it's becoming a meme i ask everybody i know at every cocktail party now who they would collaborate with irrespective of what field they're in and whether the person is living dead or has various opinions about certain groups of religious people that we won't mention on this call. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I mean, the Zach asked collaboration superpower in Vegas. People were like asking to collaborate with their wife and with their partner. I mean, you, you never know where you get with these answers. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> this one was My better. Then the one who said, I want to work with my, with my spouse. In Vegas. Um, in Vegas, right. Only <laughs> in Vegas. James Moore. He's very smart. Michael, he, knew, he knew it was being recorded. He knew it was 100%. being recorded. 100%. No, no. Very, very It, it was a strategic uh, shout out to Or Bokopsa from uh, Ven Living. Indeed. And very good pronunciation of his last name. Adalaba. Michael Broder. James Moore, CEO, COO of Rockerbox. Thank you so much for coming to Tangent today. Thank you for enlightening us all. Enjoyed it. Thank nice. you for having us. Good to yeah. see you. Last but not least, uh, wait, where can listeners learn more about Rockerbox? Feel free to visit our site. Very simple, www.rckrbx.com. Not so simple because it's not obvious that the valves wouldn't be there. You went all out startup way. You didn't remove one or two vowels. You removed every single vowel. You know, easy I, political messaging, rckrbx.com. Every time I emailed you guys, I have a micro heart attack that I'm going to misspell your company name. But the website's really cool. Worth checking Amazing out. website. Check that website now. Thanks, everyone. Thank Thanks, guys. Take care. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share the show with a friend. This episode is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.